My name is Eric Owens, and I'm, uh, I teach in the theology program at Boston College. And uh, the panel today is jointly co-sponsored by the American Academy of Religions uh, Academic Relations Committee and the Committee on the Public Understanding of Religion, of which I'm a member. So it's a pleasure to represent that committee here. Um, the event is being audio recorded, and uh, you'll be able to check on these audio recordings pretty in a matter of a week or a couple weeks, maybe. I guess I shouldn't promise anything. Susan doesn't want me to promise. Uh, it'll be up online sometime soon uh, for you to uh, to um, to circulate among those who weren't able to make it today. Um, before we get started, I ask you, as normal, you turn off the ringers on your cell phones, etc., so they don't ring or beep or chirp. Uh, but feel free to keep them in your hands because uh, everybody uh, is live tweeting at the hashtag AARSBL15. So please continue to do so. Um, as the program description for this session says, pressure on humanistic disciplines like religious studies is enormous in the modern academy. From budget cuts and the threats of downsizing, the professionalization of students and the instrumentalization of higher ed, to the adjunctification of faculties and the pursuit of STEM uh, orientations and programs that demand ever-increasing career-oriented outcomes for graduates, religious studies departments are no longer self-justifying in many colleges and universities. In his terrific plenar presidential plenary address a few hours ago, Tom Tweed mentioned three types of justifications that we typically use to express the value of religious studies to those around us. He said that we frequently say that religious studies advances knowledge of some sort, internal or external to our discipline. He says that we often say that religious studies enriches individuals in important ways, or that religious studies improves society by enhancing tolerance or perhaps creating the conditions for democratic citizenship or other ways. And in his talk, he encouraged us to refine those justifications, to push those further, to be smarter about them by identifying the guiding principles of our institutions. How do we best uh, reflect the values of our own institutions as, uh, and how we see theology and religious studies as fitting into those guiding values? Um, he also encouraged us to make sure that we're paying attention to our local context, who are, our, who are the people we're talking to, right? And our panelists will be giving uh, a lot of uh, wisdom about that from their own experience as well. But, uh, but this is um, something, know who your audience is and also know uh, what, what kind of um, uh, principles you can draw on. And, and uh, Tom also uh, said that you need to recognize that these, there are multiple goods that come out of religious studies and you don't need to put all your uh, weight on one or the other. Um, each of our panelists brings a deep experience as a uh, practitioner in the public sphere, as a scholar of religion, religious studies or theology, and as an administrator in different capacities. Um, I'm not going to linger on, on uh, um, long uh, introductions because I think that their experience will come out as they speak about. Uh, we've asked each person to speak for six to eight minutes about their experience in uh, this conversation on campus and outside of the campus about how to value religious studies. And uh, so I think we'll we'll go along uh, that process as they're listed in the book. Uh, you will, if you have a printed copy of the book, you'll recognize that I'm not Kathleen Roberts Skerritt. Uh, she's lovely, but was unable to attend here uh, today, and so I'm, I'm filling in for her. Um, so each, each of our panelists will take six or eight minutes or so to give their account. Then we'll have a, 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 any reflections among the panel for a few minutes. And we want to leave the remaining time, hopefully 45 minutes or so, for a conversation among us, an open, an open conversation. And because it's a small group, everybody will it'll be a roundtable, really. Uh, and that's always uh, the best part of things. Um, so why don't we go ahead and get started uh, with uh, Susan Hill from the University of Northern Iowa. Thanks, Eric. 
So the University of Northern Iowa is a mid-sized regional comprehensive university. We have approximately 12,000 students. We're one of the three regents universities in the state of Iowa. And I've taught there for 21 years and been in a variety of administrative positions. And currently, I serve both as professor of religion and I direct our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. And over the past 20 years, I've seen a variety of different kinds of budget cuts that affect programs. For instance, the center that I run is kind of the reboot of a center that was closed in 2001 with the first kind of big round of uh, budget cuts that we experienced at UNI. But I've seen uh, budget cuts that cut faculty course release time for running particular programs, to threats of program cuts, to faculty line reductions, to actual program closures. The most recent was in 2012. And just, um, just to put in my little personal thing, the same week that I find out, found out that I had been promoted to full professor, I also found out that my department was going to cut two positions, two in philosophy and two in religion. And at that point, I had been at the university for 18 years. And um, if one of my senior faculty members had not chosen to take retirement, because we are a union faculty, the um, last hired, first fired, we had not hired anyone in my department for so long that I would have been the person who would have been cut. So that was an interesting situation, because I was also at the same time an administrative fellow in the provost's office where all of these decisions were being made. It was a challenge. Um, these cuts were part of a broader set of cuts that would eventually close the university's lab school, which I think in retrospect we all think was exactly what the, that was the broad reason that they wanted to do these cuts, but they wanted to kind of say they needed to make broader cuts. Um, at the university in addition to closing the lab school, which was the K-12 school attached to the university. Um, and they wanted to cut 13 other faculty positions besides the four in our department, so 17 faculty positions and over 50 programs. And they wanted to restructure a bunch of other programs. So the administration created an early separation incentive program for tenured faculty who chose to leave or retire. And the union fought, we're, because we're union, they fought very hard to challenge the processes and the program reductions and were somewhat successful, maybe even more than somewhat successful eventually. So there were a number of challenges with these program and staff reductions. We were not told beforehand that our programs were up for cut. So we had absolutely no, we had no way of knowing what was going to happen until they announced it. The decisions were in fact made by administrators and we were not in the loop, even though a group of faculty had convened a number of years before to set out exactly the kinds of criteria that we should, in fact, use at the university to make program cuts. None of those were used. It was all about numbers of majors. Um, so programs that were closed were those with small graduation rates, fewer than two students over the past five years. Programs that were slated for restructuring graduated fewer than 10 majors a year over the past five years, and that was our program. So we were going to get rid of four faculty, two on philosophy, two on religion, and we had to restructure our programs. So when I say that we closed 50 programs, what was interesting about that is that the programs that got cut were mostly interdisciplinary programs that 
um, were con that consisted of courses that were taught for other programs already. And so reducing the programs didn't actually affect anybody's um, job, but it looked good to the regents who wanted cuts to say that we had cut this number of programs. So, um, so even though the graduation rates in those programs were low, it didn't actually matter because the courses that were taught were going to be taught anyway for other programs that had higher graduation rates. Um, so eventually when everything was said and done though, we lost our majors in French and German along with two faculty members, one untenured, one tenured. We lost faculty in the Earth Science program and we lost a number of programs within departments, um, a microbiology emphasis in biology, bioinformatics in computer science. We lost a small number of master's programs. We're a comprehensive university with selected master's programs. And we lost a few of the teachers from the lab school, but most of the lab school staff came over because they had joint appointments in the College of Education, so they now supervise teachers. Um, as all of this rolled out, of course, it's nobody does this on a regular basis, so the rules of the game are very fluid, um, and communication becomes a big challenge. Eventually, the early separation agreement was found to be in violation of UNI's faculty contract, and so the faculty who, it's, but they could, those separation agreements came with a bunch of money, and so those people who had taken that agreement did not in fact, were not in fact offered the ability to come back. But faculty who had agreed to retire could rescind their retirement and many of them did. A few of them took retirement. So the lab school closed, which is really a sore spot. And the emotional pain of these cuts still lingers. I think we all are kind of walking around with a lot of fear and a lot of worry about what the future is. Um, but there were some interesting things that happened. We don't, we still don't have a German major, but we have a new French major, which has been created with um, a two-year program at UNI and a two-year program at a French university. Um, people have restructured their majors. The, actually, the study of religion program had already restructured our major, and the philosophers um, restructured in a similar way and we restructured based on learning outcomes for our students so it's a really innovative major. Um, there are fewer options for students now but they don't really know that because they haven't ever known that there were other options for them to take for majors, right? Um, and since this time the religion program has hired two tenure-track faculty members. So I don't even know what to say about that because sometimes, I mean, I'm very glad about it, but sometimes I'm just, I kind of have to wonder what, what, um, how is this even happening? Um, but that's what we did. Um, so what I, and, and what happened in the aftermath of this, the provost left, the president retired, um, a bunch of people left, um, and after that, um, administrators are now kind of in a mode of we will never do this again. <laughs> which is great, right? Um, and so what I've learned is this. No administrator should ever cut programs. If you ever find yourself in the position of cutting programs, just say no to the extent that you can. Um, everyone ends up unhappy. People lose their jobs. There isn't a good way to do this, except perhaps by attrition. 
Um, if you can hang on in some way, you will probably be better off in the end, if it's possible to hang on. Um, the major is stronger. It's not bigger. I don't think we're ever going to have a large major. Um, and in fact, all of the advice that was given in the 2009 session, almost of the exact same name, the panel of which you were on before, all of the advice is um, still good, and I will let you talk about that um, kind of thing. Um, we need to make sure that we have our ducks in a row so that in case things are going to happen, that we know numbers, that we can kind of amass information and data quickly to support our programs and to make the kinds of um, justifications that we're continually asked to do. But we also need to do, and Tom talked about this earlier, to align what we do and the values of the study of religion with the university mission because that's one way that we can make sure that we can say, look, we're central to what it is that we do at the university. And fight as hard as you can. If you're targeted, you need to fight really, really hard. Amass your graduates. Have them write letters. Have people's parents write letters. Um, be prepared for these kinds of things that happen. Don't get caught without having some kind of data to support these things. Um, and I would actually like to add one other thing. I think that when Tom was talking earlier about talking about our values, um, that we also need to really be clear about those values to our students. We need to be talking to them very, very explicitly about the kinds of values and the kinds of skills that studying religion gives them in the world. Um, and, and we also need, I think we don't talk about this very often, but we need to enhance our own pedagogies so that we are the best teachers on campus so that we are the best program on campus with the best teachers um, because that will also help um, give us due respect from other people on campus and get the students to also support our programs as well. I also think that we, end up, we spend a lot of time emphasizing the major in the study of religion, which I know is important and because we're all functioning in worlds of numbers. But I do think that we should broaden our focus a little bit and also um, focus on the minor or other kinds of programs because, number one, we find that if we can get people to declare minors, they often turn into majors really easily and quickly. And the second thing is I really like to encourage all of my students, no matter what kind of major they have, to take a minor in a completely different discipline. It will make them look better. It will give them a different perspective on the world, which will make them better critical thinkers. You know, you want to be a finance major? Great. Go be an art minor. Go be a minor in something that you're interested in, but that has nothing to do with finance, because it will give you something else that will enrich your life. Um, so I think if we can kind of talk to our students about those kinds of things, what kinds of decisions they're making about their lives, it's also in our own benefit to do that. So I will stop there. Great. Thank you very much. Um, uh, our next speaker is uh, Charles Kimball from University of Oklahoma. Well, thank you. It's uh, also good to be here. I'm going to take a very different approach than uh, the one Susan just presented, uh, in part because I'm, I've had the good fortune of being 
uh, at two universities in a row where the religious studies programs are very strong and even growing. Um, the, it helps a lot. I'm, I'm currently at the University of Oklahoma uh, where we are building a religious studies program. And one of the things I would say, uh, partly tongue-in-cheek, but it's true, it helps a lot to have a university president who believes in the humanities. Uh, president at OU is David Boren, who was a governor at a young age and a three-term senator, a Rhodes Scholar from Yale, uh, who believes that history, political science, international study, religious studies are at the heart of what it means to be a well-educated person, and so has uh, really helped create a religious studies program uh, at, uh, at OU. There were a lot of people doing religious studies prior to 2002, but that's when the program began uh, formally, and they lured me away from Wake Forest University, where I was chairing the Department of Religion for many years, uh, native Oklahoman, so lured back home to help build the program. We've gone from zero to seven full-time uh, tenure, tenure-track faculty and have 22, actually totally, on our faculty who are in history and sociology, psychology, and so forth. So it does help a great deal, obviously, to have administrators, presidents, provosts, and others. But uh, having said that, uh, we're doing a lot of things, and these are the kinds of things I want to address strategically to enhance uh, our standing and, to put it in biblical terms, to prepare for the day when a Pharaoh arises who knows not Joseph, uh, because the current Pharaoh we have it really likes us a lot, but uh, who knows who the next president you know, might be or where the attacks may come from. A couple of uh, quotations that, to me, are quite relevant and helpful to bear in mind um, most people will remember, I suspect, that John Kerry uh, said a couple of years ago that uh, if he had it to do all over again, he'd go back and major in comparative religion because, as Secretary of State, it relates to everything we're doing. Uh, that's not a bad thing to put on your website uh, and, and point out. Uh, the president of uh, Harvard, uh, Drew Foss, said uh, last year, uh, or I think it was last year, and I may be slightly misquoting, but the thrust of what she said was when people say that we are training people uh, in college for their career, for their vocation, well, they're actually correct. We are doing that. It's just that it's for their fifth or sixth career, and they don't know yet what that's going to be. Uh, when you look statistically, uh, that's what happens. Most people change uh, directions a number of times, and so uh, to help break through that image that somehow what we're doing is, and this, of course, is part of what we battle against, uh, training people for the career they're going to have. Uh, no, we're doing a lot more than that in terms of broader education, certainly t teaching people, helping people to learn to think and to communicate, uh, think critically for themselves, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we could articulate. And so I think that's helpful to keep reminding people of what's involved in a college education and how important uh, religious studies can be in that, in that mix. Uh, I want to say three or four or five things real quick that I think are really useful and, and helpful uh, in terms of making the case for religious studies. Uh, all of the things that have already been said, I certainly would affirm, but I want to go a little bit further and talk about a few things specifically that, that I've initiated that have been very well received, and I think others could, could do variations on these sort of themes as well. Uh, one, uh, to look for ways... Uh, continually to make what we study, what we do, what we teach relevant in the community. Uh, my particular area is Islam, Middle East, Jewish, Christian, Muslim relations, 
And so there are a lot of opportunities to speak to uh, issues, and that's been true for quite some time. But it's also true in a number of other areas as well uh, of religious studies. Uh, we have a film coming out, or it's out now, I guess, uh, related to the sexual abuse scandal uh, in Boston. One of the faculty members uh, for us wrote a, a wonderful critical uh, reflection on that film uh, and was published widely. Uh, a very nice kind of contribution to what is going to be something talked about. has been, obviously, before, but now will be even more focused on with the uh, publication of that film. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, a scholar in Islamic studies in our program who's a brilliant uh, linguist and studies uh, Islamic legal theory and hermeneutics, uh, loves to pour over ancient texts, uh, lock him in the library with old texts, and he's a happy guy. Uh, as he was in about his fourth year, I sat with him and said, you know, there are other things that you can do too. You've already demonstrated clearly you've got a great book coming out with Harvard and various other things you're doing, but uh, how can you take some of the stuff that you know and do and make it available to a wider audience. And it was not easy for him initially, uh, but he began to get the point. We started talking about Sharia law. Oklahoma was the first state uh, to pass a public referendum banning Sharia law, uh, which, of course, was thrown out in the courts almost immediately, but by a 70% margin. There was tremendous fear about Sharia law is going to come to you. You know, it's in the Mexican border, and it's on its way up through Texas to get us. And so, uh, But the fear factor is off the charts. He wrote a wonderful piece, uh, you know, What is Islamic Law? And published it in a, a publication called The Army Chaplain that goes out to military people literally all over the world explaining in very straightforward, helpful terms that this is a work in progress. It isn't a fixed thing that many people are afraid of, and here's how it works, and here, and so forth. An extraordinarily helpful piece. When he came out for tenure, interestingly, and we had a number of wonderful uh, scholars of Islam from all over writing, you know, and reviewing, and most of them commented on his very fine scholarly productivity and productions and publications, but three different people, very prestigious scholars, zeroed in on the article he wrote for the Army Chaplaincy. Now, this is helpful. This really is helpful. Uh, and so I trot that sort of thing around and say to other colleagues and administrators, we have to really seriously consider how to be sure we're giving credit to people. Uh, they have to, of course, prove themselves as productive scholars and touch the bases, but also reward people who are making a real contribution that normal human beings can read uh, and benefit from in the midst of things that are going on in our societies. And so uh, we do that in our program. We do that. We consider those kind of more popular publications to be very valid and very important. Not the only thing that you, but a very important thing to do if it's something that you're interested and able uh, in doing. So I think rewarding that is, is very important. We do a lot of things in terms of town and gown events, do a lot of public lectures uh, for the university and uh, you know invite people from the community. Uh, that involves some internal fundraising and, and so forth, and that's something more and more of us are doing more and more of. Uh, these days, but it uh, it works very well, and again, you get a lot of attention, publicity in the community. Sometimes you have to spend money to do that, where you put advertisements in the newspaper about a, a speaker who's coming to campus, that sort of thing. Uh, I encourage people in our program to you know be available, speak in Rotary clubs, speak when you're asked to speak in churches and mosques and temples, uh, be part of interfaith panels or whatever might apply. 
uh, and be visible and present in the community. Uh, help people see that you are, we really provide a resource that benefits not just the students, but the wider community. And so we do a great deal of that, which I think is actually quite constructive. Um, and be a resource uh, also. Many, many universities have uh, programs, elder hostel or some equivalent of that, programs of ongoing continuing education for retired people or interested people in the community, and many of us teach in those programs. It's usually like doing four two-hour presentations over a month or something. It's not a heavy-duty responsibility, but uh, people in the community, they come in throngs uh, when you want to teach about Islam or about almost anything uh, that we do. And, you know, they talk. They know people. Uh, there's a buzz that's created and there's a value that's there, not only for the people, but it benefits us as well. When the president sends me a note saying, boy, you know, I heard so-and-so and so-and-so did these uh, lectures. That's great. You know, that's exactly the kind of thing we want to see. Uh, well, it helps even those who aren't already on board, I think, when you're doing that kind of thing. Uh, one of the things I initiated, and this is, again, sort of for it has, it's a win-win-win uh, program, I think. We, we started this at Wake Forest. We do it at OU now. When anybody publishes a book, and we've had 16 books published by our 22 faculty members in the last six years, uh, when anybody publishes a book, we have an event. Uh, we call it New Horizons in Religious Studies, and we celebrate that book. We... Uh, uh, invite faculty, majors, minors, administrators, uh, people in the community who are interested and so forth. Ask the person to speak about the book, and they can kind of do with that what they want. Have a Q&A time, a very nice reception. Uh, I raise money privately for this, and a couple things that I do is, one, we get the, the book cover framed beautifully. I mean, I spend three or $400 on the framing to present to them. It makes a very nice event, and it really honors and affirms what they've done, it calls attention to what we are supposed to be doing and are celebrated for doing. But I also uh, buy extra copies of the book, depending on how expensive it is, how many I can afford to buy, uh, and get signed copies for the president and the provost and the dean and the uh, vice president for uh, research in the university. And even though I know that uh, it's not likely they're going to all read those books on Islamic hermeneutics or whatever it might be, um, it's amazing the sort of feedback that comes uh, when they get the point, you know, so my gosh, you guys are going crazy down there and producing all this stuff. They get the impression, then you hear the provost and the president talking about religious studies whenever they're making public uh, comments about what we're doing. We're really on the map. We've got people doing this, 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 and that that are so, so important in the community. So it's, it's a way of calling attention to the successes in a very thoughtful way, in a non, I mean, in a normal kind of way. Let them see a copy of the book. They often write notes back personally uh, to the person who published the book. Now, there are a lot of books being published on the campus, but most directors and chairs of programs don't go that extra step to call attention to the good work that's being done and to really honor the person uh, for having accomplished what she or he accomplished in the publication of that book. So I think things like that actually uh, are very beneficial and, and plant seeds such that, and, and of course we get attention with majors, with minors, and various other things too, my idea or strategy there is that when the budget cutting comes, and it's likely to be pretty serious belt tightening fairly soon, Oklahoma was one of the three states that actually did fine uh, after 2008, but now is not doing so fine because of the oil and gas industry uh, prices, that when cuts, when people are beginning to look at what do we not need 
that religious studies is one of those things, oh, no, that's something that's going really, really well. There's no way we're going to touch that. Uh, and so, I mean, that's part of the strategy involved. Um, more to say, but I'll uh, save that for when we have time for Q&A and hear from others. Great. Thanks so much, Charles. Um, I bet all of us wish we had a chair that was as attentive to the sponsored scholarship of uh, faculty than we're hearing from there. I hope we hear more examples of that out here as well. Um, our next speaker is uh, Professor Vasu Narayanan. She's a past president of the American Academy of Religion as well as a professor at the University of Florida. Hi, good afternoon, and thanks so much for coming today. Um, I've been at the University of Florida since 1982, and initially as an adjunct, that was the second round of adjuncting I'd done. And then when they made an honest woman out of me, I kind of continued there. In 2009, just before spring break, I was called into an administrator's office and told when someone in the next level would roll out a budget cut formally and publicly, um, the department of religion would be shown on the PowerPoint screen as being cut fully. By that, what was meant was, and I was assured of this, that my job would be fine, which is not the best thing you want to hear at that point, and another person would be okay, and I could probably pick one or two people to be farmed out to other departments, but everyone else, and we were 13.5 people at that time, would be fired, tenured, and tenure track. And there is the small print which says that's legal when the program was cut. Over the next few weeks, I met with several members of the administration um, and the university, got in touch with the AAR, and when the rumblings of the budget cut was in the air even two months earlier, I'd been kind of contacting different people just on the off chance that we would be affected. The worst that I thought would happen was that untenured professors would be let go. That's a euphemism. But the department would be intact. So I was preparing mentally for various levels. What happens if one or two people are fired? I'll use that word. What happens if the department is disbanded and people are put in other departments and the program is closed? But I'd never in my wildest dreams thought that people would be fired. I mean, I thought the worst thing that would happen was they'd put us out in other departments. So my goal was to not simply to keep the department alive and intact. This was the messiah complex coming out in me but to carry out the war in such a way that were we to survive, we could continue to have professional and courteous relations with the administration. And it was not easy fighting the so-called nonviolent wars when everyone is out for the blood of budget cuts. So today I'll talk about making the case for religion or how we made it with our case in particular. And while each case is unique, what is generally common is that administrators seem to think that religion is an easy target. The religion department is frequently just the size of a valuable cut. 
Like the ideal chair of Goldilocks, the departments are neither too small or too big, just the right size to make a dent in that budget and save them. To back up a little bit, as has been noted in any number of articles in the Chronicle and even in our blurb, the humanities are reeling with the same problems. Low enrollments translated to low budgets, fewer lines in the departments and job prospects for graduates, and too many administration administrators thinking it's easier to get by with adjuncting. An administrator who had proposed the cut formally in the university explained this explained it to me thus when he said that the department would be cut, fully cut. He said, I can imagine a college of liberal arts and sciences without a department of religion, but I cannot think of one without history, classics, or English. The, this is the closest that people come to an intellectual argument. They, do, they don't go beyond that. The problem stated by the administrators usually are, one, it's not financially viable to have your department. The content can be, and this is the worst problem, and the most important in my opinion. Everyone feels that what we do can be done by other people. In political science, in psychology, in history, and yes, every one of them has one narrow area of specialty which will take care of it, but they cannot, they don't understand the field of religion. And this can be further um, you can go further on this. I was told we don't have, and you know, whenever a problem was stated to me, it, it's it's kind of like a bad marriage. You think you fix that problem, you answer that question, your department will be saved. And of course, the next reason comes. So you don't have enough majors. So immediately you get on the case and you find out from all the peer peer universities departments how many numbers they have. We are comparable. Oh, we didn't mean the number of majors. We really meant the number of student credit hours. Back on the case, get the statistics again. It's always helpful to keep that updated year by year and get the AAR to help you with it. And of course, you never have enough credit hours when you're compared with the social sciences, particularly psychology or political science. So The problem happens to be that while now all the humanities are having similar problems, just about his, every, all the universities I've spoken to, the history, um, English, and other department majors have been, it's about a third now to what it was five or six years ago. None of them have to show cause to live. Religion has to, at least in the largest state universities where you have other large colleges competing. We are 55,000 students, 4,500 faculty, 16 colleges. So the solutions offered by the administration frequently are closure, mergers, just whittling away, letting people die and go. And so the rest of the game, uh, rest of the paper today will be for me, it'll be like a video game in which when you, op when you open one door to face a problem and solve it, another problem, another door opens with a different kind of demon behind it. And you have to keep going beyond that as we go. It, it becomes that way. So the first level is, do we need the humanities? 
That's the first thing. And in a large, forget calling it a university. This is a university. This is not a polytechnic. This is not a science school. You need the humanities. The compelling reasons actually come from scientists and business people to support the, the humanities. And I have a whole list of articles on the subject, which I read four years back, to help me. And I've grouped the arguments in four. One, and the, the arguments that they have used. They argue, A, the importance of whole brain functions, which, which improve the quality of thinking and research. Second, the need for broad-based education, which determines the questions to be asked of science. So you can go build better science thing, but we know what questions to ask. C, the links between liberal arts and entrepreneurship always seem to be good. And four, the focus on critical thinking and communication skills. So the arguments that have been made by deans of engineering in other places, which they've written about, and there are extensive articles from Northwestern University and other places on, this, on these subjects. So there's a whole cottage industry of studies to back up these issues. Granting that we win this first war, we still have to win the religious studies war. And here, do we stand up as a humanities department without an application, or do we show that religion has uses? Do we need to use the instrumental reasons why the humanities are important? And I'll come back to that point. And some scholars hold the position, as many of you know, and this is best exemplified by Stanley Fish, that the humanities do not and ought not have any application. However, the greatest champions for the value of the humanities, for good research, innovations, and entrepreneurship are now seen in the sciences. So in recent years, several scholars have urged greater attention to the humanities to help produce better scientists, that kills you, and engineers and better workers in the corporate world. And there's yet another knee-jerk application theory that many of us, and I put myself in that category, make immediately. It's a knee-jerk defense. And we always say that to understand the events of the world, particularly in the 9-11 atmosphere, we need to know about religion. Two years back, I think it was two, three years back, AAR, the AAR produced a white paper on making the case for the study of religion. A very good uh, document, 18 pages long. It's still on the web, I think. I think it ought to be anyway. I think it was called the Teagle or something like that. And if you bear with me, I'd like to read a passage from it which exemplifies this point. It, it's a very long document with wonderful suggestions. I don't know if they were ever followed up. But this passage kind of proves or exemplifies what I was saying about why we need to know religion. Of course, those of us in the field of religious studies know that religion has always been an ines inescapable part of politics as well as an inescapable part of economics, foreign policy, social mores, and domestic interaction. While that reality has not changed in recent years, public perceptions doubtlessly have. And so the, it goes on to argue how um, we ought to know about religion and the dangers that emerge 
when we fail to recognize religion as a potent source of motivation and behavior in a world shaped not merely by 9/11 but by Iraq, Bosnia, Kashmir and the West Bank, not merely by abortion but by gay marriage, intelligent design, euthanasia and stem cells, Americans increasingly accept the idea that we need to accept need to understand a diverse range of religious phenomena. So that is from the white paper and I'd like to use that with a little bit of caution while it's very important to have that kind of instrumental case to show why we need religion to understand the world and we all make that many of us don't deal with such realities i mean my work in the last 2 weeks has been to determine what weapons an atom vishnu carries in a bar relief in a 9th century 10th century carving in siem reap in cambodia and what's the meaning of the crocodile on top of him is probably kind of the stuff that makes the state senators toes crawl when they hear about what i'm doing so it one has to be careful in using those kind of instrumental cases and yes we need to do it but careful So if your department is uh, vulnerable and I go back to the points we made a few years back I'd encourage all of us to have a first aid kit ready get in touch with chairs of departments and peer institutions always make it a standard point consult your faculty have a list of contact information for number of institutions and people who head various organizations presidents of AAR SBL Asian Studies Middle Eastern Studies Association Oriental Society and so on have a list of people within the university who can support you you'll need them in a hurry when the administration is moving swiftly these people can be invaluable in writing behalf of your department write op-ed pieces in local newspapers and and bring attention in a good way to your department um in from also have a package with crucial numbers which we heard about earlier um how many publications do you, do you have at your department um papers teaching records um books grants received internal grants outside it doesn't take much to keep that together they may not have the time the other people who are writing letters may not have time to go through all the materials on the website about you you should give them a cliff notes about your department to help them write a department so you know that they're, they're not writing for a poor pathetic little department um major grants received publications courses the department reaches what your alumni do that kind of thing in getting letters you have to decide whether it's useful to deluge the administration with letters we decide that that would not work getting 200 letters say, saying i want religious studies is not going to help they're not going to read the letter or to get a few just a few which carry more weight and we went that route do you want professional organizations to write you have to decide your your department may not care about the aar if you think they do a state university would get them to do it the letter the aar did for us carried the full force of the academy and was very impressive other colleges may pay more attention to donors well known alumni local community who will who will jump in i'd also suggest contacting peer institutions and mass and amassing all the basic numbers and i had a whole section which i'm not going to get into because um charles um got into it very deeply about the outreach contacting local people and so on so what have we done 
recently, and I'll just outline the one, two, three, four bullet points and then stop there. Um, we have been in very close touch with our advisory committee. Uh, if you don't have one, get one. And with them, worked heavily with outreach and without them also, both in terms of the local community as well as the media. Precisely what you said. Um, I think that's invaluable, absolutely. Second, internal communications within the department and communicating com uh, what, you do, what people do in the department on a weekly basis, on a short newsletter, which goes out not just to our department members, but to our deans, associate deans. We call it the Friday Bulletin. I initiated that about one year, about a few months after I, this happened, a few months after that. So it's a much smaller version of what Charles suggested a few minutes back, but the Friday Bulletin goes out to our alumni advisory board, so they know we are active. Where are people presenting papers that week? Which universities are they going to? What associations are they going to? What publications have come out? Student activities, all within a page or page and a half. People don't have time to, to eyeball more than that. What awards have come and upcoming deadlines. And this is enormously helpful because the, 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 the administrators know that every week someone's doing something and our department's on the ball. Um, and finally, we've had we've integrated our department into other humanities department with the other humanities. Uh, a sad state in a large university was the people whom you think may help you the most did not. It becomes the question of survivor. And the administration was very good on that in trying to get um, the other humanities felt that if we, if we kind of get rid of one department, the others can survive. And we've integrated it by having an interdisciplinary course called What is the Good Life? with all the humanities involved and got the buy-in of the administration such that now it has become mandatory for every incoming first-year student to take that course. 6,500 students have taken that course every year in the last two years. And the last line, so what was the result? Our department survived very well, thank you. We got an extra line the following year. And no good deed goes unpunished. I was interim chair until then. I had to become full chair <laughs> after that. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, oh, there's a terrific amount of information for us to discuss here. This is great. Um, our final uh, speaker is uh, Grant Potts from Austin Community College. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Um, so I'm going to be speaking a little differently than I think others here because I don't consider my audience, you guys, to be people who are in a situation I'm in because I don't think any of you teach at community colleges or definitely, and some of you may, but um, don't run programs at community colleges. And so while I'll be talking a little bit about my experience the and and what insights I think that can give you. Um, part of what I'm also going to be talking about is the importance I think that programs in religion need to have on community colleges if they want to survive. 
Um, I will also talk about my experience in trying to build a program in religious studies or in religion, as we, we would be calling it there, um, at Austin Community College. And the sort of larger budgetary issues, and the budgetary issues on the immediate level weren't as concerning. We had good institutional support, but state budgetary issues threw a giant wrench into that process this year. Um, so I want to, I want to just make you aware to be, you know, have those ideas on your horizon. So just to give you a sense of where I'm from, Austin Community College is a five-county district. Our uh, VP for academic programs used to often say we have a service, a state-mandated service district the size of New Jersey. We have 11 campuses, 78,000 students, a little over 35,000 of who are degree-seeking. Um, only about 22% of our students are full-time. 78% of our students are working full-time while they're going to college or substantially while they're going through college. Um, but unlike many community colleges, we're kind of unique. Most community colleges have a very high low income. We only have about 19.5% of our students who are coming out of a low income back background. Um, so I want to start off by talking about community colleges and just give you kind of hopefully not a wall of statistics, but some statistics to, to get you thinking about what's going on with community colleges. And some of you may be familiar with um, this narrative, but community colleges are becoming an extremely important part of undergraduate education. According to a recent report by Texas Completes in Texas, only 21% of students enrolled in public universities and colleges enroll in four-year schools. The other 79% are in two-year schools. So four out of five students roughly in Texas who are undergraduates are going to two-year schools to community colleges. Uh, that's a very significant part of the undergraduate population. Um, unlike us, 41% typically of those are full-time who are in two-year schools. 38% are part-time. Nationally, 61% of community colleges students are part-time and 39% are full-time, just to give you a sense of, of where students are coming from. And according to the National Center for Education Statistics, Texas is somewhat of an anomaly in our high numbers, but not much of one. And I think actually it, it, Texas indicates trends that will be reflected nationally. 37% of all students current, currently enrolled in public two-year institutions. 37% of all students who are enrolled in undergraduate educations, that includes private institutions, are in public two-year institutions. 35% are in public four-year institutions, and 17% in private nonprofit four-year institutions. So there's a big number of students in community colleges. And as I'll talk about later, if you survey through community colleges, religion and religious studies is almost just not represented. I mean, there's a few of us out there doing that, uh, but for the most part, you're not going to find classes in religion and religious studies, and you're very, very rarely going to find programs in religion and religious studies. That said, humanities are a big part of community colleges, and I think there's often a perception that community colleges are primarily pre-professional and professional. Um, of two-year degrees granted in 2013, uh, 4, 428,444 were in professional fields, but in the humanities, which would include broader kind of liberal arts degrees that are often there in many community colleges instead of a kind of major, um, th 338,688 of the, the two-year degrees granted were in the humanities or liberal arts. So it's a significant portion of what's happening at community colleges are liberal arts style majors or humanities style majors. And compare that with the natural sciences and social sciences, each of which have nationally under 50,000 people getting to your degrees granted. So you do have significant interest in humanities and liberal arts at community colleges. Again, I, I want you to match that also with the fact that there is little representation of religion. 
why, if you're at a four-year institution, just besides the sheer numbers of students there, should you be interested or even in an R1 school? Well, according to the National, Clearing, uh, the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, 46% of those who completed four-year degrees have been enrolled in two-year schools. So 46% of those students who have completed four-year degrees in some point in their trajectory through that have been in two-year two-year schools. In Texas, that's 70%, just to give you kind of where, where we are in Texas. And nearly half those students were enrolled for five terms or more. And that's important because you can't think, well, maybe my students took a class here or there at the community college to save money or over the summer. But in fact, you have a significant portion that were in there as degree-seeking students working through a program of study. Recently, the Inside Higher Education report citing, uh, reported that of a cohort that began in 2003, one-third had transferred to another institution by 2011. So transfer students are a big part of what's going on, and a huge number of those are coming from or going to two-year schools. And while enrollment in uh, Roman has declined in community colleges very recently, as it has in four-year universities, and but the enrollment in community colleges is higher since the 2008-year recession. There, the bump in enrollment we saw there was primarily driven by two-year colleges, and that still remains on the kind of larger trajectory. So I think you know you get my point that you have the potential of having a number of students going through community colleges beginning their degree-seeking activity there, beginning their programs of study there, and then ending up at a four-year school. Now, when you match that with the fact that there's tremendous underrepresentation of the, of the study of religion, there's a good chance that you have students who arrive who, even if they were interested in the study of religion, are not going to major if they've already completed two years and don't have those foundational credits. And that's what I, you know, I really want you to think about, um, is that if a big chunk of your students are transfer students in your university, and they have been able to begin a program of study somewhere else, it's more likely they're going to continue that program of study. All right. So I've thought about this for a while, obviously. Um, and when I got hired at Austin Community College, the then chair, who's now my dean, um, had a... Uh, you know, a real interest in hiring me. I'm the only person teaching religion there right now. You know, this huge school, we have, count them, six classes a year in uh, Introduction to Comparative Religion. But he wanted to see if I could build a program in the study of religion. Uh, Austin Community College had had a very robust uh, offering in the in the study of religion. We offered about 10 to 12 sections a semester. They were very popular years before I arrived, but then there was a SACS accreditation review, and ACC was, you know, kind of miserable and had been, you know, like many community colleges in the past, hopefully, willing to basically put anyone in front of a class. You know, they had people who were certified in Latin teaching intro to biology, um, and in the process, the SACS became very severe in the requirements for accreditation, and People who were very much legitimate scholars of religion, sociologists of religion, anthropologists, religion, historians of religion, political scientists with a specialization in religion, were no longer allowed to teach religion. So we weren't able to make those offerings simply because we didn't have the faculty to do so with a specialization in religion. There are very few do, you know, um, graduate programs in religion in Texas, in public universities. There's a lot of theological programs. Uh, but basically, in terms of real programs, uh, you, you have them emerging in the last 10 years, but they're relatively new. 
They're relatively new in Texas. Uh, so and it was lucky for me. I got a job because I showed up with my PhD from Penn, and I was one of the few people around who could actually uh, fulfill this role. Uh, and in, interestingly enough, there were the resources there. There was institutional support. And at a community college, we, we are very limited in what we can offer in that the state dictates, at least in Texas, that through a common course catalog. We can offer whatever courses we want, but we don't get reimbursed by the state unless they're in the common course catalog indicating that they're transferable to four-year institutions. And I think there's some good reasons for that because transferability is really important in the academic programs. Um, but at the same time, that does mean if there's changes there, uh, that can create problems for you. There were two additional courses besides our introduction to comparative religion, philosophy 1317 and 1316. Yeah, we had philosophy numbers for our religion classes, um, which I then developed into, I made intro to comparative religion much more of a critical thinking methodology course and developed those into Eastern and Western religions, got philosophy of religion on board and was in the process of figuring out the fifth class that we would need um, for the religion major. When I received an email, uh, that was actually earlier this year, that in fact those two additional courses, 1316 and 1317, had been cut from the course catalog because there was state pressure to clean up the budgets of, of community colleges and four-year schools by streamlining the course catalog. And really, it was a situation, it looks like, where no one was even thinking about it anything except, what are these? Oh, we don't need those, and cut them, and there was no real review process. I mean, we're in the process of getting those back on to the course catalog, and there's a number of schools in Texas, two-year schools in Texas, who are interested in that. Uh, but that will be a long process. It will require support from four-year schools in order to pull it off, um, and it does set us back. So... That does uh, show me that, you know, this whole experience in looking at community colleges makes me realize there's a number of things, and I'm just going to hit them really quickly, that we want to think about when we're thinking about retaining the study of religion in the climate of budget cuts. One, we do have to confront the relative marginalization of our discipline, and I think we have to confront that head on. We do need to make the argument for why it's important to think about religion, but I think even more importantly, we need to stop talking about, the, about why it's important to think about religion by just pointing to the, the fact that it's an important topic to understand. Because if you make that argument, anyone can look at you and say, yeah, but you know, sociologists of religion can talk about religion too. We have to figure out how to make the argument for why the discipline of religious studies is important and why our particular disciplinary framework framework is important and why a program of study in religion is important. So I also think, I don't know, maybe it's different for, for many of you, but I, you know, I had a, a trajectory that was fairly diverse in my, in my experience coming up in religious studies. I studied at a liberal arts school for my four-year degree. I went to get my master's at Arizona State, a large public university. I got my PhD at Penn, and then I ended up at a community college. And throughout that, there was a kind of acceptance by religious studies that we were a really, really good program for students to take classes in, and we might want to encourage someone to major if they were thinking about becoming a scholar in religion. What we really need to think about is why, why it is valuable to have people who have specialized in the study of religion somewhere else besides the academy. Where can we make the, the argument to employers, to legislators, to others, on why it's important to have citizens, to have people on your management team who have that specialized knowledge? Now, not everyone necessarily needs that, but why is that an important part of the mix? Um, what is a four-year religious studies degree besides a precursor to graduate school? And I think, you know, I see that at the two-year level, of course, but uh, when we're working, we're really working towards that four-year degree. And 
Finally, the last thing I'd say we need to do is we need to network better between schools, between programs and study, because enrollment trends are fickle, budgets are fickle, state legislatures are fickle. We need to be more dynamic, responsive. But you've heard all that from the other speakers, so I'm there. All right. Thank you very much. Um, there's so much stuff out here. I mean, we've, we've heard categories of sort of uh, what to, how to hunker down, right, what sort of defensive bureaucratic jujitsu needs to happen uh, when you're under attack. We've, we've heard about some preparatory steps and best practices for uh, showing the uh, establishing scholarly productivity and relevance within communities, academic and non-academic. We've heard a few warnings about things. And um, there's just so much to talk about. But I think this is one of those opportunities when I don't have to say, please dis you know, um, disguise your short speeches as questions, because you can come up and actually share your experiences here. We don't need to interrogate the panel, but rather help one another figure out where we stand in different institutional contexts, which is so is so important, so different from place to place, as you've seen here. Uh, my own institution, you know, uh, at Boston College, the theology department is at the center of the university, and and there's no that's it's a different conversation. We try to help defend the liberal arts when parents come and say my kid should be, uh, you know, a business major or something. Uh, so we're not fighting necessarily for our discipline within the university, within the college, but rather for the humanities as a whole as well. And every every context is different. So um, I invite you to to stand. It would be helpful with the microphone. This room is so big uh, that really I invite you to use the microphone anyway, despite our small size. But step up and give us a little context of where you're coming from, if you've got advice for us, or if you'd like some questions, whatever. Yeah, Christy. Okay, I'll start. Of course, let um, us know, you know where you're coming from, what your context uh, has been. Yeah, where I'm coming from. I'm peripatetic. I'm <laughs> uh, considering whether to stay in academia or do other things. I'm doing a lot of freelance, ed freelance editing and writing. Um, but, you know, I, I'm on the job market frequently and go around and, and see and hear things. And one thing that I was asked at a job interview is, how do I teach diversity? And I thought, well, I'm a religious ethicist. Um, I, I teach religion and violence and, and religion and conflict. And certainly diversity is an important ethical concern, but I don't know that I teach that or am trained in it. And I kind of grumbled to myself internally, you know, why am I being sort of conscripted to teach diversity? It kind of reminded me of when I was in college in the late <coughs> 80s and, and the English department was sort of the site of the canon wars and diversity. And I wondered if their you know, mission of teaching literature was being sort of hijacked in service of this thing. So that's one thing. And was it, just to be clear, though, were they asking if you were uh, teaching students to embrace diversity or whether you were demonstrating whether diversity? I, whether the... I would be doing that as, okay. a, as a teacher and how I would mm -hmm. do that. And then the second thing more recently um, in, in my hometown of, um, I'll just say it, Lafayette, Louisiana, there is a University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And my mother has a friend there who is a senior uh, professor of business ethics in the business school and is nearing retirement. And she mentioned, it's sort of been mentioning to them they should hire me. So I was at my office editing something and I got a call from a guy who I identified himself as uh, teaching philosophy. And I figured out pretty quickly he was from the philosophy department that they killed a few years back. Mm. And there were some grumbling articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education about that. Uh, so he's teaching in this program and said, you know, I, I've heard you might be interested in teaching. And I said, well, what do you have? You know, what do you need? And he said, well, we need someone to teach five courses. We've got a, a professor who's taken ill and is going to have to take the semester off. It'll be 2400 a course. We might be able to get you some benefits or other stuff. And I said, well, you know, when did you, uh, when does your semester start? 
start because it was the end of August. And he said, oh, it started last week. So I started wondering, I mean, I've heard of just-in-time hiring all <laughs> over corporate America, but this is sort of after the time. Are they waiting to see how many courses or yeah, how many students are going to sign up, and then they'll decide whether they're going to hire the course? And I kind of said, you know, I'm actually kind of busy, um, but I'm sort of terrified that they're going to call me two weeks into January and want me to teach or something. Um, but I wondered, a couple of weeks after that, I was at the grocery store, and the, the woman who was checking me out was talking to a fellow checkout girl, and she said, yeah, you know, I'm, I need this education class, and uh, it was canceled. They're not offering it this semester, so I think I'm going to have to do another semester. And I thought, well, wait a second. Is she taking out student loans for this? Uh, is she one of those people who's going to default or take a long time? The La University of Lafayette in Louisiana and Lafayette used to be called University of Southwestern Louisiana, and people said that that stood for University of Slow Learners. But I started to think, wait, they don't have the faculty to teach the courses that they're um, saying they're offering. So this isn't just about the students. This is just yeah. about them not hiring faculty. And I'm toying with the idea of writing uh, an anonymous letter to the accreditation board. But So that's the question. Mm -hmm. it should, should disciplines be... Um, you know, conscripted in service of other things like diversity. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And then mm -hmm. what about, should, should one write a letter to the accreditation board? Mm -hmm. Should we move, do you want to, does anybody want to say something about that or should we keep the conversation moving and is there any particulars on that? The accreditation board, is, is anybody served on, I don't know how those worked. <laughs> you don't want to. Okay, all right. Yes. I mean, like, um, to some extent, I think your experience is, is par for the course. I mean, it's something that we experience at community college level, not the least of which is that, you know, people get frustrated, especially our adjuncts. We have like 78% of our faculty are adjuncts at ACC. Um, and, uh, and yeah, if they got something better a week into the course, they'll jump out. And then as a department chair, I got to find someone to cover that. Now, I tend to try to tap on my standing faculty because taking over a course is difficult if your experience with that institution, it's doubly difficult bringing it in last minute. And that's just, that would be, I think, classified under not good best practices <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah. But it's a reality that's there. Now, I, I just wanted to address that because, I mean, I, d I don't know if that would actually do much at an accreditation board because it's, it's just sort of a reality mm -hmm. that is there. Uh, but an encouraging sign I'm seeing in community colleges in Texas is that the administrators see those pre precisely those kinds of dynamics are finally coming to the surface, and they're coming to the surface because there's increasing demonstrations and research showing that that kind of scheduling practice is contributing substantially to poor completion rates. And so, yeah, this is a situation where conservative legislatures who are pushing for good completion rates are putting pressure on administrations, and as they dig into it, some of these practices that are really toxic in schools like this are, 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 are coming under the axe, and there are practices that should come under the axe as administrators realize that, although there may be some benefit financially immediately, in the long run, it really doesn't work for them to have less commitment to their faculty, so they fall off the way like that. So. I would just briefly address the other question, which I was having a conversation with people the other night about the fact that 
We all envision that being a scholar of religion is something close to what we did in graduate school. And for some of us, that may be true. And for many of us, we are um, pressed into doing things that we had never envisioned that we would be doing. And I don't necessarily think that is a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's a good thing. I just think that's the way it is. Just about so, everyone has to do world religions. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that. yeah. And um, on some level, if, uh, if higher ability is a question, then one should indeed um, try to be as flexible and skilled at teaching as many things as one possibly can. Uh, and the, just quickly on the diversity question, uh, and, you know, Generically, you can't respond to everybody and every, yes, you should do that. I mean, from my perspective, if you're teaching religious studies, you are teaching diversity uh, by definition. I mean, but you talk, if you're teaching Christianity, well, there are 20,000 Christian denominations in the world. Uh, I mean, so every culture, every tradition is present uh, if you're teaching more religions and so I think there are a hundred ways to answer that question, absolutely. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing that we do, uh, and and I could you know go on and on elaborate that. I do want to make one other comment about uh, something uh, that Grant said that I think is very it's a very useful thing. I suspect most people do this, uh, and that is uh, having on a website or some readily accessible resource. You know, uh, what do you, what can you do with a religious studies major, and then have very specific responses to that. Uh, in my experience over 25 years, uh, a lot of people have done great in medical school and law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a international relations, uh, human resource people. Almost any business now uh, needs people who know something about the different religious traditions just by the mix of their own employees and so forth and so on. So are there, you actually have a lot of resources of the people who graduated in your programs, one of the things that we've always encouraged, and I suspect others do too, uh, are double majors. Religious studies makes a great double major, and 60%, 70% of our students who major in religious studies are double majors with all kinds of things. Uh, so I think that kind of resource too really gets at one of the questions that's used to kind of come at religious studies. What's it really good for? Well, it's good for a lot of things in today's world. Great. Let's get to some other questions. Go ahead. Hi, um, I, my name is Dan Matthewson. I teach at Wofford College, a, a private liberal arts college in uh, South Carolina. Um, it, thank you for a very interesting panel on a, a very important topic. Um, but it struck me that uh, all of the panelists um, uh, come from uh, uh, public institutions, very large public institutions. And I, I, I honestly did not hear my own institutional uh, context being spoken. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious, mine sounds more like yours, where there Religion department yeah, is I was, pretty central to the... I was supposed to be Kathleen, who came from a small liberal, uh, from the University of Richmond, uh, which okay. is a private liberal arts right, school. Right, yeah. yeah. That, that, well, yeah. That, that was sort of my question. I, yeah. I, I just, I wondered, is it is part of the reason because these issues are more acute at, at your institutions than they are at, at an institution like mine? Or, um, yeah, I just would like to hear um, more discussion of that. 
Well, in terms of the panel construction, I don't. I think that there, we, the attempt was to have a spread of different kinds of things, but also bring people with actual experience defending, you know, defending their departments. But do you want to jump on too? Well, I just say uh, actually, I taught at Furman for six years, yeah, so yeah, right yeah. Uh, yeah. next door to uh, to we, we, we beat you on Saturday, so <laughs> I know. Uh, the uh, so yeah, I think you're, there are very different. And I was at Wake Forest for many years, which was uh, is is comparable. It's you know it got bigger because it got in the ACC, but it has the same kind of history as Wofford and Furman and Richmond and so forth. Denominational you know schools with that at the center. So I do think there are some different dynamics, although some challenges. The challenges there probably have more to do with the financial realities of private schools and what's the bang for the buck uh, as the tuition rates go up and up and up. And there will be more and more of a squeeze. I think there already is uh, in the humanities, in the private schools even, given uh, just the cost of higher education. Yeah, for much of my career, and I still do um, one class a semester, at St. Edward's, so I have a connection there to a liberal arts school, and I see many of the same issues there. In some ways, they're amplified, and I think some of the strength of, of liberal arts schools is also the problem. They're very student-centered, which is great, uh, but kind of building off what you said, like one thing I think it's important that we don't think about, we often do have the what can you do with your religious studies degree. What we don't often have on our web pages is why you should hire a religious studies major, um, and we need to be speaking not just to our students and thinking about our students and convincing them of the value of our majors, but mm -hmm. the broader public. And I think in a liberal, arts, a liberal arts context, that's that's really really important. I'm often struck by at St. Edwards across the professorate, not just sort of in religious studies, the overwhelming ignorance of the the location St. Edwards had, which is extremely positive in the business community in Austin. I know routinely when I talk to executives in the business community in Austin, they want to hire graduates from St. Edwards. Most professors don't even know that. Um, and that sort of reflects, I think, part of what happens at liberal arts schools, because just because of the, the kind of smaller, I mean, it's the environment I grew up in, so I see that and see the value, but it, it creates its own problems. I think one of the other things about private uh, colleges and universities, a conversation that comes up is about core uh, core curricula. And when there's a struggle, like at Harvard <clears throat> University, they, you know, took religious studies out of the core. And at a place, you know, like a Jesuit university, that would never happen. But we do have a very strong core. But how that core is manifested, we're in the middle of a major core renewal at Boston College. Well, the front end, I shouldn't say the middle. The, the new classes have started, but there hasn't been full buy-in yet. And it's been a big struggle because uh, my department teaches already important core classes of they have a different name and so my department was very resistant to joining this new version of the core not because they think that theology doesn't belong at the core of what we do but that, that the new way of doing it was considered by some to be newfangled and uh, that we have a good program already over the year-long courses and so there's different ways there's still even within places that really value uh, religious studies or in my case theology um, there's still a little some tensions about how it's taught and where it sits in the program and et cetera. Yeah, a couple other questions. Why don't we take both those questions at once, You're, uh, both of you, or comments or questions, so we make sure that we get everything on the table. Uh, my name is Luke Whitmore. Um, I teach at the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. Come forward just a little bit. Um, one of three religious studies people in a department of housing and department of philosophy. And as I'm sure most people know, in the University of Wisconsin system, there's been massive budget cuts. Uh, that affected our campus a great deal, and so the religious studies program inside of philosophy was placed in a defensive position um, that we're, you were working with. Uh, and I'm grateful for the language of why you should hire a religious studies major 
I think that's a, a useful reframing. But as I think about it for myself in terms of how I, arti how I articulate the, the usefulness of religious studies to students and to other people, I found myself struggling with the, the degree to which the argument for, for why majors are important or marketable versus why it's important at the level of general education. Mm. Um, and that's hard because when you're, when you're in a defensive posture, you need to, the, the message needs to be simple and clear. Um, and I find myself struggling on that point because I don't, like, like there's no way to make an argument that, that my university needs 300 religious studies majors. It just wouldn't, wouldn't make sense. So. That's a great question. I know several people are going to have some stuff. Let's get the other two questions out. I and was going to ask comments. essentially the same question. Oh, so, really? um, my name is Kate McCarthy. I teach at California State University, Chico, yeah. in Northern California, about 15,000 students, four-year comprehensive university. Um, we have survived by penetrating every corner of general education <laughs> that we can possibly <laughs> insert ourselves into very effectively and successfully. But when it come time, comes time for hires, we're told, You've only got a handful of majors. majors yeah. We can't give you anything. So I'm wondering if anyone has successfully made the case on a budgetary basis for the value of religious studies in general education. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Great question. Go ahead, and, and then we'll take all these. Yep. Jennifer Reisinger from San Jose State University in mm -hmm. California, and we are a bit larger than Chico at about 28 to 30,000 students on any given semester, also comprehensive. Um, part of what's happening, and I'm not naive, um, is that we are told, as, as Kate was saying, that we need more majors at the same time that we're not given the faculty resources to generate more majors, and it looks to me like a strategy of attrition. Um, and I also appreciate the comment of, you know, I don't think our university is ever going to have 300 religious studies majors. I don't think that's appropriate nor, nor possible. But I'm wondering about ways to counter that strategy. Now, we are, our religious studies program is part of a larger humanities department. We have always been housed there. And our department decided to get ahead of the game strategically. And we did our own restructuring and combined all of our programs and integrated the major, came up with some new courses that were genuinely interdisciplinary. And now we're being told that we shouldn't have restructured. And again, I think we're being told one thing. Uh, what, what they're, they're saying whatever they need to say in order mm -hmm. to, to try to get rid of us. And I think, again, Susan, your, your experience is very similar. Um, and so it's kind of, it's very hard to, to um, outthink them in their own language because their language is so malleable in their own hands. Um, so anyway, that's, that's our situation. I just wanted to add um, two positive things that um, we were able to do. And one is through social media, it's a really, really good way to stay in touch with your alums and find out the alums who care the most about your program by having a Facebook page and inviting them all there as they're graduating seniors. And then when they keep contributing year after year, you know they're going to be willing to come up with a statement. And it also lets you know what their careers are. And I also tie in in LinkedIn with every major I know who's graduating for the same reason. Mm -hmm. So I can be charting what they're doing. Um, so that, anyway, I'll just end there. Yeah. But, but it's kind of how do you stay ahead of their, of their language? I don't know how. Maybe from being on, playing on both sides of the fence, Susan, you might know. Yeah, so a, a happy confluence of questions here about uh, uh, the jujitsu required to, to pull this off. Last question. Oh, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. I didn't see you there. I'm, I'm Marcella Norling. I'm from Orange Coast College in Orange County, California, a two-year <laughs> public community college. 
uh, a lot of what they said. But my goal is to try to make other community colleges create religious studies departments so my graduates can get jobs. Uh, mm. Speak to this, if you may, when you're answering. Sure. Okay, great. Thank you all. Go, who, Just one the, part of the answer about majors. That's not a game that any of the humanities are winning at this point, at least not in the larger public institutions, unfortunately. And the only thing is the strategy that you have um, suggested earlier that is going into the other, uh, penetrating the other core curricula, uh, curriculum stuff. And we only fought it by talking about the number of other service courses that we could teach. Another strategy that worked for us recently and may not for other schools is, but perhaps even in the four-year schools it might, uh, we've created a limited number of online courses to attract a larger audience um, of people who would never have ever taken this course before. It may not be a substitute for, the, for what one might say in-house experience, but it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. When I, before I asked my department to do it, I did one on conceptions of, the, of death and the afterlife in world religions. And it, it got people from n people who wanted to be nurses, from the medical school, all kinds of places, taking the course because they couldn't come across the campus to take it where I to teach. So those kinds of numbers seem to help. Um, Numbers have only to be fought with numbers. And as you well know, people choose what numbers they want, and we can also go back to them with this. Yeah. Just a quick comment related to the, the, the gen ed. I mean, in my experience, and certainly what we try to do, and seems to work pretty well, uh, is do a lot at the gen ed level. Uh, a, because it really is a service to the university, and there are a lot of people who are only going to take one course, but if they learn to begin to think intelligently and critically about religion, that's an important piece of being a well-educated person. And so that is a value. It doesn't, get, doesn't show up except that, as Vasuda was saying, you want to uh, have the numbers you know, show how many students you're actually teaching uh, and contributing. Plus, the more of those you offer, the more people are exposed to religious studies, and I think we're probably all in agreement. Nobody is out assuming we should have tons of people majoring in religious studies. But an awful lot of people get hooked. Uh, I mean, and we've all had the experience dozens of times, at least in four-year schools, where somebody in a junior year will wander in and say, gee, I, I didn't know you all existed. This mm -hmm. is great stuff, but I'm already way down the line on my psychology degree or whatever. Uh, so they might take another course or two or maybe minor. But when they get exposed uh, in their first or second year, and I'm talking particularly about a four-year school here, uh, although the same could really apply, I think, <laughs> very, very much so, at the community college level, uh, they'll come back for something else uh, and something else and often will become a minor. And a really important, uh, I think, element of success, which I've been fortunate to have in different places, are outstanding academic advisors, people who know you know, how to make the system work and to get to students who show interest and say, okay, here's what you can do. Take this course. Here's some course you can take that will meet your requirements but also uh, scratch that itch that you're feeling. And you may or may not end up majoring or minoring or whatever, but you're moving in a way. You're not just taking random things, but you're really moving forward. And if you have really good academic advisors, uh, they can make those pieces fit. And you see people get really excited. Gee, I could double major. I really could do that if that's something I decide to do. 
So I hope this doesn't come off wrong, but I'd say that, you know, on, I, and I feel like I hear this whenever I hear us talking about, uh, you know, our programs and our departments. Um, I really think we need to stop being so meek. Why shouldn't we have 300 majors even at a small school? I mean, if on one hand we say the study of religion is essential to the modern world, and then on the other hand we say, well, maybe it's appropriate that we only have 20 majors. I, I think we're, we're not doing ourselves a service. I think we've been on a defensive posture for so long, and we have created strategies like, well, we can support the gen ed program, and I think that's good, but if we're not taking the next step and really using those gen ed connections to connect with students, help them get to the study of religion, and showing them the value so that they can also show to their future employees, employers the value of what they're doing, then, you know, then maybe we do deserve to be a kind of esoteric discipline that primarily exists at our one schools. I mean, maybe that is what we are, and if that's the case, then that's what we have to face and accept and not, not worry about it. But I don't believe that. I mean, I think that of all the humanities, the study of religion, that's why I'm here. I'm, you know, I could just go the path of philosophy. I'm also a philosopher, but I think that the study of religion, more than any other discipline in the humanities, precisely because it's not just a humanities, but also a social science, is probably, maybe just for purely historical reasons, the most valuable undergraduate degree you can get, unless you're going to be a specialist you know, in the natural sciences or whatnot. And I think we need to make that argument. Susan? Not sure I have a lot to add about that, except that I think so. I think part of the piece of this really is about how much we also, in our gen ed classes, not only show them about religion, but also be very, very explicit about talking to them about exactly what you said, why this is the most important thing they could do. I think sometimes we think that, that that simply or that only teaching the class, right, is the most exciting thing and we're very excited about it and and that's great and we should be, but we also really need to be giving them the language, I think, just like Grant said, about how they can actually also talk about why it's important to be a religion major and why it's important to do these kinds of things. I mean, I agree that we, you know, might stop being so meek. I suspect that in my local context, it's probably not going to happen that we're going to have 300 <laughs> majors. I'm just going right. to say that. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? But um, but I do think that, um, you know, the more that we can kind of, you know, we have a senior seminar in our department now that, that talks to the one part of it is very explicit about how do you sell yourself as a religious studies major? How do you talk to employers about that? We have them go through mock interviews. We have them do all of those kinds of things in addition to talking, in addition to kind of talking about the completion of their major. We try to train them about how they can actually go out in the world and talk about what they have studied. Um, so I, I think we need to get strategically really clever and smart about doing that kind of thing as well. And the problem with all of the, the problem with trying to figure out where the administration is going to hit next is that you just can't, mm -hmm. right? That's part of keeping us off balance. That's part of trying to make us, you know, exhausted constantly trying to figure this stuff out. And, and I don't necessarily think that's the administrators at the universities, um, 
necessary goal, I think they're also from above them getting different stories and different um, requirements and different mandates all the time, right? Yeah. Because of the changes in higher ed. So. Thank you all in the audience for being here and for being a part of this important conversation that, of course, is a is part of the fabric of our professional lives. And so this will be an ongoing conversation at different meetings and, and all sorts of things. But uh, it's important that we think seriously about it and act together uh, when we can. And for that, you know, I'm especially grateful for these terrific panelists to share their experiences and to be available to, to help with the jujitsu or the challenges or the networking or all the best practices that we've heard. So please, thank you very much. And thank Thank you all for being here.